This is Space Time, Series 21, Episode 47, for broadcast on the 15th of June, 2018. Coming up on Space Time, New Horizons wakes up for the most distant planetary encounter in history, Blue Origin's new plans, which include a blue moon, and the weak side of the proton narrows the search for new physics. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA's New Horizons spacecraft has woken up in preparation for what will be the most distant planetary encounter in history, the 2019 New Year's Day flyby of the Kuiper Belt object 2014 MU69, which has now been nicknamed Ultima Thule by the New Horizons team. Cruising through the Kuiper Belt more than 6.1 billion kilometres from Earth, New Horizons has been in hibernation mode since December 21st. The Kuiper Belt is a distant ring of frozen worlds, comets and icy debris that circles the Sun beyond the orbit of Neptune. Radio signals confirming that New Horizon has executed onboard computer commands to exit hibernation mode reached mission managers at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland through NASA's Deep Space Communications Network on June the 5th. From its current location, more than 40 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun, A radio signal from New Horizons travelling at the speed of light takes 5 hours and 40 minutes to reach Earth. And of course, another 5 hours and 40 minutes for Earth to reply. Mission Operations Manager Alice Berman says the spacecraft's in good health and operating nominally, with all systems coming back online as expected. Over the next few days, mission managers will collect navigation tracking data using signals from the Deep Space Communications Network and they'll send the first of many commands to New Horizons onboard computers to begin two months of preparations for the historic flyby. These will include memory updates, Kuiper Belt science data retrieval, and a series of subsystem and science instrument checkouts. Then in August, the team will command New Horizons to begin making distant observations of MU69, images that will help the team refine the spacecraft's course to fly to the object. New Horizon Mission Principal Investigator Alan Stern from the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, says his team are already deep into planning and simulations for the upcoming flyby and are excited that New Horizons is now back in an active state to ready the bird for flyby operations. The 165-day hibernation, which ended on June the 4th, was the second of two such rest periods for the spacecraft before the next flyby. New Horizons will now remain active until late 2020 after it's transmitted all the data from the MU69 encounter back to Earth and completed other Kuiper Belt science observations. New Horizons made its historic flight past the dwarf planet Pluto, its binary partner Sharon and their four moons, Hydra, Styx, Kerabos and Nix, on July 14th, 2015. The data returned from that close encounter has completely transformed science's understanding of these intriguing worlds at the inner edge of the Kuiper Belt. Since then, New Horizons has been speeding deeper into the dark outer regions of the solar system, observing other Kuiper Belt objects and measuring the properties of the heliosphere while heading towards its next flyby target some 1.6 billion kilometres beyond Pluto. New Horizons is now approximately 262 million kilometres, less than twice the distance between the Earth and the Sun, from its target, speeding 1,223,420 kilometres closer each day. So, what about that new nickname, 
Well, Ultima Thule is Latin for a remote goal or aim, the highest degree attainable. In classical and medieval literature, Ultima Thule acquired a metaphorical meaning as the most distant possible place beyond the borders of the known world. In Greco-Roman culture, Thule was often identified as meaning Iceland or even Greenland. To others, it was the Orkney Islands off the northern Scottish coast, or a geographical region believed by ancient geographers to be the northernmost land in the inhabited world. MU69, or Ultima Thule if you will, was originally estimated to have a diameter of about 30 to 45 kilometres, based on its brightness and distance. It had a reddish spectrum, making it the smallest Kuiper object to have its colours measured. Observations in 2017 concluded that MU69 is no more than 30 kilometres long and very elongated. In fact, it may actually be a close or even contact binary comprising two separate bodies. In fact, during an occultation on July the 17th last year, a two-lobed shape was revealed, with diameters of 20 and 18 kilometres respectively. MU69's orbital period, that is the time it takes it to get around the Sun, one MU69 year if you will, is slightly more than 295 Earth years, and it has a low inclination and low eccentricity compared to other objects in the Kuiper Belt. Between June the 25th and July the 4th, 2017, the Hubble Space Telescope spent 24 orbits observing MU69 in an effort to determine its rotational period and further reduce its orbital uncertainty. The results show its brightness varies less than 20% as it rotates. Together with the fact that its shape has already been shown to be extremely irregular, the small amplitude indicates its pole is probably pointed directly towards the Earth. And that's good news because it means the timing of New Horizons flyby doesn't need to be adjusted so as to look at the larger axis of the object, thereby significantly simplifying the engineering of the flyby mission. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. Blue Origin boss Jeff Bezos has offered to hold talks with Australia's new space agency over space tourism plans and his plans for the moon. Blue Origin's lunar plans are just part of the company's growing footprint in space. The New Shepard launch system's continuing test with eight successful flights now under its belt. New Shepard will be used as a space tourism launch system, undertaking ballistic journeys to just above the Kármán line of 100 kilometres above the Earth's surface, marking the official start of space. And if all goes to plan, the first paying space tourists could well start flying next year. The name New Shepard is in honour of Alan Shepard, the first American astronaut in space and one of NASA's original Mercury 7 astronauts. Shepard's flight was also on a ballistic suborbital trajectory, similar to that being used by New Shepard. Meanwhile, Blue Origin's new heavy lift rocket, the new Glenn, is still online to be ready for its maiden flight in 2020. The new Glenn is a two- or three-stage orbital launch vehicle, capable of carrying 45 tonnes into low-Earth orbit and 13 tonnes into geostationary transfer orbit. The name new Glenn is in honour of John Glenn, the first American astronaut to orbit the Earth and another member of NASA's Mercury 7 astronaut squad. The two-stage version of new Glenn will be 88 metres tall, while the bigger three-stage version adds another 11 metres, bringing the total stack to 99 metres in height. New Glenn's first stage will be powered by seven Blue Origin BE-4 engines, burning liquid oxygen and liquid methane. A single vacuum BE-4 engine will be used for the second stage, while a BE-3U vacuum version of the motor originally developed for the suborbital New Shepard will be deployed on the third stage. And like the New Shepard, the New Glenn's first stage is also designed to be reusable. The company claims it's now well on the way to having the rocket, its launch pad and landing procedure all in place by the proposed 2020 deadline. 
The company is busily developing its new launch facility on the site of the old Launch Complex 36 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Base in Florida. Blue Origin's also taken over the Cape's Launch Complex 11 site, which will house the engine testing facilities for its BE-4 rocket motors. But Blue Origin's plans don't end there. In fact, they extend all the way to the moon, with an unmanned lunar lander to be called the Blue Moon also on the drawing board. Blue Moon derives its vertical landing technology from Blue Origin's new Shepard. It'll be designed to fly aboard the new Glenn, but can also utilise NASA's own new heavy lift rocket, the SLS or Space Launch System, and the United Launch Alliance's Atlas V and upcoming Vulcan rockets. The Blue Moon lander will be capable of delivering 4,500 kilograms to the lunar surface in support of NASA activities, and it will also carry samples and other cargo back from the Moon. One of the primary aims of New Glenn and Blue Moon will be in support of a future manned lunar base envisaged by Jeff Bezos. The Blue Origin and Amazon CEO is hoping to eventually establish a permanent human settlement next to Shackleton Crater near the lunar South Pole. You see, the floors of polar craters on the Moon are in permanent shadow, and so are thought to hold huge reservoirs of water ice, which could be converted to liquid water for drinking, to hydrogen for fuel, and to oxygen for breathable air. For now, Bezos is planning a maiden flight to the lunar surface, possibly as early as 2020. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with Dr Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. We're going to uh, look at colonising the moon. This is an idea that's been put forward by, uh, I think he's the richest man in the world. I believe he is, Andrew, and his name is, of course, Jeff Bezos. He is the founder of Amazon, which is a relatively ubiquitous company. And apparently he's worth, wait for it, $176 billion. And I think that's, uh, I don't know whether that's Australian or US. doesn't really matter, does oh, it? It doesn't really. Uh, when you're talking <laughs> that kind of money, conversions just have no influence whatsoever. They, they so he's worth me. 176 and his company so far has paid me $1.21 in royalties. Oh, very good. Well, there you go. You're getting your fair share then. Yeah. <laughs> Can't retire uh, yet. <laughs> sorry about that. Mm. Um, so, um, of course, he's not only the founder of Amazon, but also the founder of an aerospace company, which is called Blue Origin. And Blue Origin makes rockets, basically. And Indeed, they are venturing into the space tourism business, like that other well-known entrepreneur who founded uh, SpaceX. We have a person here with the aim of bringing down the cost of space travel, bringing down the cost of launching. And the, the way Blue Origin is doing it is much the same as the way SpaceX is doing it, and that is to pioneer the idea of bringing back the launch vehicle to Earth and landing it safely on its tail and essentially um, reusing it for future launches. Mm. So when all these competing companies have brought the cost down sufficiently that we can all get into a space rocket and go into space, Jeff Bezos has got his sights set on the moon, which once again contrasts with SpaceX's vision, which is to get people to Mars. But Jeff Bezos really wants to look at the moon as potentially a place where we could do manufacturing and essentially set up factories on the moon, partly because the moon is it's got gravity, so you can build things there. It's not 
a tiny world that stuff will float off. But it lends itself to things that actually manufacturing processes that are not conducive to being used on Earth and whether the reduced gravity actually comes to your assistance. Plus the fact that there's water there, there's low temperatures in the poles if you want them. And well, he just thinks it's generally a good idea. Now, I don't know whether that is true or not, that it's a good idea, but I do like the idea of being able to send astronauts back to the moon. Yeah, and there's certainly talk of, uh, I think it's China doing that in the not too distant future. Uh, yeah. But how realistic is it, Fred, to put a colony on the moon and, and stay there long term? Because, uh, yeah, OK, it has gravity, but it's not nearly as significant as the gravity on Earth that we are adapted to and have spent thousands of years living with as a, as a species. So we are made for 1G. So what happens if you live long term on a moon yep. that does not have one G? You've only got one sixth of a G. Yeah, uh, th that's correct. Uh, so what you talking about here and I think what Jeff Bezos is talking about is not so much colonizing the moon as using it as a base for industry, which probably involves robotic technologies. OK, and that's is really what he has in mind. And I guess one of the other issues that comes from this is the fact that solar power will be readily available on the moon because there is water there. We know in near the poles, there's actually water on the surface, frozen water, but actually there's water in the rocks as well. Because of those attributes, you can imagine for certain types of industries, and I'm not really quite sure what he has in mind here, but for certain types of industries, you could have really autonomous operation with things happening on their own and maybe, you know, just just a small crew of astronauts looking after things. So it's more of a, an extension of the Apollo missions than the idea of colonising the moon in the same way as people are talking about colonising Mars. Yeah, and he's talking about putting like a billion dollars a year into this, which is yeah. chump change to him, I suppose. But uh, yeah, right. if you've got the money, it's, uh, it, it's probably something worth investigating because the moon is rich. And Indeed, that's right. Yes, that's the other thing. You know, people are interested in things like helium-3, the isotope that's uh, found on the moon and, and not elsewhere. Mm. Um, gosh, do you think he can pull it off? I bet he does. You, you reckon he will? <laughs> his, his Blue Origin uh, project is going great guns. It's uh, giving certainly, you know, the tourism aspect of that, which is sending people up to uh, in suborbital flight to look at the Earth from, from space. That is rivaling what Virgin Galactic are doing. And Virgin Galactic seem to be on the point of starting to take space tourists up. I think Blue Origin is not far behind. Now, he's talking... Now, this isn't going to happen next week. Uh, he's talking maybe having this happen within 100 years. So That's he's obviously right. not going to be around unless, yes. unless he knows something that we don't uh, to, to see this fulfilled. But he's obviously willing to uh, put the, the money in and, and make it happen for the future. So, yeah, um, I think that's right. It's a similar situation to Elon Musk. It's a person with extreme wealth and a great interest in the future of humankind and inspiring people to do these outrageous things. Who knows where it will take us? I don't know. That's Dr. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory speaking with Andrew Duncan on our sister program, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. A new, more precise measurement of the proton's weak nuclear force has helped scientists narrow down the search for new physics beyond the standard model. The weak nuclear force is one of the four fundamental forces of nature, the others being gravity, the strong nuclear force, and electromagnetism. 
The weak nuclear force is mediated by W and Z bosons and is responsible for holding protons and neutrons together to form elements and for radioactive decay. The weak force changes the flavours of quarks, turning protons into neutrons or vice versa, and consequently triggering nuclear fusion, the process that makes stars shine. The new research, reported in the journal Nature, was carried out by physicists working on the Q-Weak collaboration at the US Department of Energy's Thomas Jefferson National Accelerator Facility. One of the study's authors, Roger Carlini, says accurate measurements of the proton's weak force act as windows into a world of potential new particles that otherwise might only be observable using extremely high-energy accelerators that are currently beyond science's reach. The study revealed the precise strength of the weak force's grip on the proton by measuring the proton's weak charge to a high precision using a continuous electron beam accelerator. The proton's weak charge is analogous to its more familiar electric charge, a measure of the influence the proton experiences from the electromagnetic force. These two interactions are closely related, often considered two different aspects of a single electroweak force that interacts with subatomic particles. To measure the proton's weak charge, an intense beam of electrons were fired onto a target containing cold liquid hydrogen, and the electrons scattered from this target were then detected and measured. The key to the Q-weak experiment is that the electrons in the beam are highly polarised, prepared prior to acceleration to be mostly spinning in one direction, either parallel or anti-parallel to the beam direction. With the direction of polarisation rapidly reversed in a controlled manner, the authors were able to latch under the weak interaction's unique property of parity violation, in order to isolate its tiny effects to a high precision with a different scattering rate of about 2 parts in 10 million measured for the two beam polarisation rates. The proton's weak charge was found to be in good agreement with predictions of the standard model. Because the proton's weak charge is so precisely predicted in this model, the new Q-weak result provides insight into predictions of heavy particles, such as those that might be produced by the Large Hadron Collider at CERN or in other future high-energy particle accelerators. For example, the results set limits on the possible existence of leptoquarks, which are hypothetical particles that can reverse the identities of two broad classes of very different fundamental particles, turning quarks, the building blocks of nuclear matter, such as protons and neutrons, into leptons, such as electrons and their heavier counterparts, the muons and taus, or vice versa. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. And there are grim warnings in a new study which claims Earth's climate will increase by 4 degrees by 2084. The findings, reported in the journal Advances in Atmospheric Sciences, are a slap in the face for the United Nations Paris Agreement, which was hoping to prevent the catastrophic effects of 2 degrees warming. The authors warn that a great many record-breaking heat events Heavy floods and extreme droughts would occur if global warming crosses the 4 degrees Celsius barrier. To reach their conclusions, scientists compared 39 coordinated climate model experiments, finding that most models projected an increase of 4 degrees Celsius as early as 2064 and as late as 2095, with 2084 appearing as the median year. The increase translates to more annual and seasonal warming over the land rather than the ocean, with significant warming in the Arctic. The variability of temperature throughout a year would be lower in the tropics and higher in polar regions, while precipitation would most likely increase in the Arctic and the Pacific. Now, These are the same effects that would occur under both 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius increases, but under 4 degrees they will be far more severe. 
A new study says Australians who are currently in their 20s now have an almost 90% chance of surviving until they're aged 70. That compares to just a 54 to 72% chance for Australians who are in their 20s back in the 1960s. The findings reported in the Medical Journal of Australia use data to simulate the chances of a 20-year-old living in the 1960s reaching the age of 70 through to a 20-year-old living in the year 2010. Of course, one of the key differences being a 20-year-old in the 1960s could have been conscripted to fight in the Vietnam War. The modelling also suggests that the risk of dying during middle age has dropped substantially, especially when it comes to dying from cardiovascular diseases. But it's not all good news. With less Aussies dying during middle age, disability rates for older Australians are expected to double by 2031. Of course, Australians already have one of the world's highest life expectancies, with an average lifespan of 82.8 years. That's equal to Spain, and less than a year behind Japan on 83.7, Switzerland on 83.4, and Singapore on 83.1. Rounding out the top 10 in terms of life expectancy are Iceland, Italy, Israel, Sweden, and France. Canada comes in in 12th position, New Zealand in 17th, the United Kingdom in 20th, and the United States in 31st position, where the average life expectancy is 79.3 years. Scientists trying to explain the so-called sonic attacks against American diplomats in Cuba and China say using sound waves to generate neurological damage would be difficult to achieve. Embassy staff have reported unusual sensations of sound and pressure. The effects were subtle and vague and included headaches, nausea, problems sleeping, issues with balance and difficulty thinking and concentrating. A report in the Journal of the American Medical Association claims some victims displayed widespread injuries in their brain networks. Although the real cause of the damage couldn't be isolated, it may have nothing to do with any sort of alleged sonic attack. The victims claim their attacks were caused by acoustical energy outside the normal range of human hearing. The problem is scientists can't figure out how someone could generate enough acoustical energy to cause hearing loss and brain damage. The thing is, the intensity of very low-frequency infrasound, or for that matter, very high-frequency ultrasound, reduces rapidly with distance, meaning really big speakers the size of a house would be needed to cause the sort of neurological damage they're talking about. The recordings of sounds some of the victims heard during these incidents have led other experts to suggest that rather than some sort of new acoustic weapon, it's more likely the victims may have been hearing faulty electronic eavesdropping and spying equipment or malicious technology designed to damage embassy computer systems installed by Cuban or Chinese agents. A new study claims that contrary to growing popular belief, physical exercise does not slow cognitive decline in dementia. The findings, reported in the British Medical Journal, are based on a clinical trial of nearly 500 older adults. Researchers found that participants who undertook twice-weekly gym sessions plus exercises at home significantly boosted their fitness, but did not improve on cognitive tests compared to their non-exercising counterparts. Instead, they found that exercise may actually have worsened their cognitive ability. The scientific method involves observation, hypothesis, experimentation, analysis and conclusion. Science, you see, is all about critical thinking, a search for the truth. Don't just take someone's word for it. Test the claim. See if it really is factual and stands up, or if it's just a great steaming pile of woo. That's what scepticism and evidence-based science is all about. It's a search for the truth. And remember, scientific facts don't care if you like them or not. There's an old saying, there are lies... Damn lies and statistics. Never take statistics at face value. 
As any politician will tell you, you can get statistics to say pretty well anything you want them to. It just depends on the questions you ask, the way you ask them, and which of those questions you then bother to include in the final statistics. In politics, it's called push polling. That's why it's always important to look deeper, to understand the background, in order to find the real truth. My favourite would have to be those climate change deniers charts that keep cropping up every now and then. They show no change or even a slight drop in temperatures or CO2 levels as positive proof that global warming isn't real. Of course, they never zoom out to show the full chart spanning many decades, because that would reveal the real overall trend of increasing man-made CO2 levels and the matching increases in temperature. So, the rule is simple. Always check the source for bias. Check the methodology to ensure its foundations are sound. Make sure the context and the comparisons are correct and that it's not based on false or inaccurate conclusions. And finally, always ask yourself whether it really makes sense. And even then, when the stats aren't being deliberately skewed, it's still very easy to misread them. Seeing patterns or false positives in statistics that really aren't there is a common human failing. Remember, statistics only ever produce probabilities, and their conclusions are open to debate and change. Aran Segev, president of Australian Skeptics, joins us now to provide a skeptic's guide to statistics. So, Stuart, it turns out that we are really quite bad at statistical thinking. And to understand why, let's think about how our brains evolved. Living on the African savanna was dangerous. There was a lot that could kill you and eliminate your genes from the gene pool. So to survive, you had to be very careful. So if you heard rustling in the leaves but couldn't see what it was... It was an incentive to thinking it was a tiger and staying away. If you were wrong, no harm was done. If you're right, you've just saved your own life. The result is that seeing patterns when they're not really there is a very common error. In fact, it is so common that it has a name. It's called a false positive or a type 1 error. The opposite type of error is a false negative or type 2 error. With this type of error, you would assume the tiger isn't there even though it is with predictable results, uh, which is why it is less common in human intuitive thinking, but definitely not completely absent. Another type of poor statistical thinking is poor understanding of randomness and the idea of streaks. A common trick among statistics teachers or professors is to assign half the students to write down a sequence of coin flips that they actually really flip, and the other half of the students do it from their imagination. And then the teacher takes all the pages with all the lists and tells each student whether they used a coin or not, simply by looking at the list. And the key to this trick is that real flips are truly random, and therefore they're messy. For example, they might include six heads in a row, but the imagining students assume that it's very unlikely to happen at random, so they only have short sequences. So that's something that the somebody who knows statistics will actually see and identify. The gambler's fallacy is also a result of this kind of faulty thinking. A gambler playing roulette may feel like they're on a roll or, or conversely that they're up for a win because they've been on a losing streak. But in reality, every play has exactly the same odds. What happened earlier makes no difference at all to the results of the next roll of the roulette. So the overall house majority wins doesn't change for each new player. It's always the same. It's absolutely always it's the same for every single role uh that's uh, and there's a lot of there are games when uh where that's not the case for example card games where cards are drawn the odds change with the progression of the game the overall odds are still in the favor of the house but the odds per round may change due to the cards that are being played but in 
games like roulette, every single role is exactly the same. How is this important for skeptical thinking? That's actually a very important question because what is it that skeptics try to do? Skeptics try to ensure that people think rationally and make decisions based on evidence. The problem with with poor statistical thinking is is that it leads to failure of thinking. It leads to poor decisions. Now, the gambler's fallacy is one such example, but you could see the same example in the way people assess, for example, the odds that they will they will be healed by specific treatment. People do not understand, for example, intuitively, that a 90% chance of an operation succeeding is a 10% chance of it failing. Oh, I do. I'm a, I'm a pessimist by nature. So <laughs> the glass is never half full in my world. So yeah, no, but... <laughs> I'd, I'd see the 10% straight away. No, yeah, but most people don't. Although the physicist in me always says the glass is always full. It's just... It's just only half full of liquid. Most people, when they hear 90%, they say, oh, that's so high that essentially I'm going to be okay. And then, of course, they're shocked when it doesn't work. Now, of course, if you're talking about life-saving surgery, then it always comes down to uh, what are the odds uh, that you will be cured or against the odds that you will suffer some horrible um, event as a result of not uh, taking the treatment. But people do not actually understand statistic in, uh, statistics intuitively in a way that really affects their lives. Similarly, people do not understand things that are important to them economically that have statistical nature, like insurance or like uh, superannuation and, and, and pensions in general. All of these things are based on the fact that we do not think about statistics correctly because our brain just doesn't do it very well. That's Aran Segev, president of Australian Skeptics. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favorite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 